My guest today is a playwright and dramaturge. Please welcome Shawana Renee Ravon. Shawana, how's it going? It's good. It's good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here. I think I've only done one other podcast, and that was years ago. So I'm excited. Okay, great. Nice. Yeah. And you did it years ago. Okay. Yeah, nice. a long time ago. All right. Well, so let's jump right into this. What do you do? I am a playwright and a dramaturg. And so playwright, of course, I write plays. I write plays from a historical standpoint, mostly dealing with Black women, historical events, and things I like to connect it to the present. So I write about past issues that Black women are still dealing with today and how to grapple with those issues and how to move forward for a better future. And I partner it with comedy. Mm. So I'm really big with comedy. So I write a lot of comedies. I feel like because we can digest the truth easier that way. And then like later when we're driving home, everything I said hopefully hits you in the heart. Right. (laughs) And then I'm a dramaturg and that is a researcher. I research. I research information and gather up information for playwrights or myself before they start to write a play. When a playwright goes into a workshop, That means they have maybe like one of the drafts of their plays. They have a director, a theater involved, an actor, stage manager. So they have the whole team there. But the play isn't finished. Once the play goes into a workshop, they all work together to get a finished product. And a dramaturg is usually in the room because if a play takes place in the 80s and someone says, let's do the snake, you know, like the snake was a I believe in the 80s, mm-hmm. but if the play took place in 81, they can't just say, let's do the snake if it hadn't been invented. Got and it. that's a dramaturg's job, is to make sure that the facts line up and that the story is being told properly. So they do the nitty gritty parts of finding out what's true and not. And so I do both. And so I'm able to, a lot of times, do the research for my own shows. Okay. And what do you call it? Dramaturg? Dramaturg. Okay. All right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's interesting. You see bloopers sometimes where you see shoes in certain shows when they shouldn't have been there at that time frame or, or right. shirts or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Right. All they right. They didn't invest in a dramaturg. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Got it. Didn't know about yeah. that. So when did you get interested in writing dramaturg? Yeah. Also, you do producing and acting right. as well, right? So when did you get basically interested in the arts? Um... Since I was, I was interested in acting and just being in front of the camera and, and just doing anything where there was an audience, I wanted to be a part of since I was a kid. And mm. so fast forward to my early 20s, I moved to Los Angeles and I started acting there. And I was in Los Angeles for almost 10 years. And while I was there, because I looked younger than I was, so if I looked look younger now maybe or whatever I guess that depends on who's looking but I was in my 20s then so I looked maybe 13 14 and so the roles that I was auditioning for 
I was having to dummy way down and I just didn't feel good about that. I was entering my thirties at the time, mm-hmm. you know, after so many years. I was able to work on cartoon shows and I worked on Strawberry Shortcake, mm-hmm. Care Bears, and The Brat. Yeah. And so those were my survival jobs. And so doing that and then auditioning and not booking the job, I started to write. I didn't know if I could write, I always wanted to write. And I just said, I'm just going to write the kind of roles that I want to play. And I started writing and it just felt great. Mm -hmm. And I was able to sit down and write entire plays in a day, Mm -hmm. you know, because I just could not, I couldn't turn away from it. (laughs) Like it it was just easier for me. It was easier than the acting. It was easier than anything that I had done so far. And I was not trained in it like the other artistic that I've been doing and so I started letting friends read it and they were like oh my god this is great you know but these are your friends so you don't know but a production company in Houston actually loved it and they produced my first play and they took it on a tour and it starred Vivica Fox and Brian McKnight and Wendy Raquel Robinson and so after that I kept writing plays and they continued to take them on tour. And so that's how the writing started. And I worked for this company, I'm Ready Productions, for a couple of years. And then I became their creative director and working with new writers and helping them create their own scripts and get them up to par to be considered to be produced. And so I just fell in love with it. And from there, the writing just took off. And I started writing for other production companies, friends, myself more, different avenues. And then I eventually came back home to Houston. And I had my daughter in 2014. And when I had my daughter, I was like, well, I can't live the life of the artist. We don't have um, a steady income. We book a gig or something, and then we just kind of wait for the next one. And even though everything was really fluid for me at the time, I just, you just never know. And so I decided to go back to school and train because I wanted to become more focused and hear the real voice that I had inside that I had not been able to get out because I was writing for more of just the urban market. Mm -hmm. And so when I went back to school, I went to U of H and I got my BFA in playwriting and dramaturgy. And so that's where dramaturgy entered my life. And so I've been doing it my whole life. I just didn't know what it was. But like you, when I entered the program, they told me you're also going to be a dramaturg. And I was like, oh, because I didn't know what it was. I was like, Mm-mm. <laughs> I don't want to do that too. <laughs> Whatever that is. I didn't sign up for that. I just want to do the playwriting. And end up finding out how they go hand in hand. Mm. And so that's how I've gotten into that. And, and, you know, dramaturgy, being a dramaturg has its own part. Sometimes someone might call and just want me to dramaturg their show, which is interesting to watch another playwright go through their process and and be a helping hand for them. Mm. Well, that's great. So basically you were trained in acting, but it seemed like your passion was in writing and you followed your passion and then you ended up getting uh, also trained in it as well and continuing to flourish. That's awesome. Now, yes. 
Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. And now you mentioned writing entire plays in a day. Can you talk about just what inspirations you use to write, if any? Is it just being in a certain place? Is it music? What type of inspirations do you use? I use, like, the first play I wrote was Cheaper to Keeper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was just based on my own life mm-hmm. and people around me, though a lot of the story changed. But the heart of it was, was the same and the things that I was going through at those times were the same. And so I found healing through it. Mm-hmm. And so it was like the more I wrote and the more I got it on the page, the more I felt better about whatever the situation was. And so that has just been the core of writing for me, period. And so now that I'm writing things about Black women doing Jim Crow or Black women in the Black Panther Party. As I'm writing, I feel like I'm healing our pains and I'm hoping as others see it, they're healed and able to move forward. So that motivates me to keep going because I'm so eager to get that out and it just feels so good. Mm. I don't realize that I'm not eating this morning and I don't realize Mm. that because back then I had a a dog and the the only reason I would stop was because I had to take her on a walk. Mm. And I would be like, come on, hurry. (laughs) You can do it. Let's go. Because I got to get back in. So I don't write them as fast anymore because I have a daughter Mm -hmm. to make sure but sometimes I really try to. And then when you're walking your dog or with your daughter or out somewhere, are you also taking notes whenever ideas come in your head? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if I forget to write it down, I could kill myself later <laughs> um, because I'm all day searching for that idea. Right. And so, yeah, I keep a log in my phone or a little index card and I just write it and I write any ideas, any inspirations. Anything that has happened to me, any stories I've been told, people now send me things about anything. Like my friend Miles the other day sent me about, and I don't don't want to get her name wrong, but about a sculptor, a black woman sculptor who sculpted, I think, Franklin D. Roosevelt's picture and how she hasn't gotten credit for it. And he sent me that article. Friends are constantly sending me articles and so... And every time I say, like, I told my friend, I was like, oh, thank you for sending me this. And he was like, well, I just thought that you were the best person to do something with this information. I'm like, oh, my God. Now everybody, (laughs) they're sending me stuff and thinking I'm definitely going to write it. But along with what they send me, I put them in a special place and go back to it. And I just think about what stories need to be told. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then talking about stories that need to be told, you mentioned the uh, Black women in the Black Panther Party. This is part of your sixth play cycle, correct? It is. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I started writing this play, I think, in the fall two years ago, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. I was writing a play about Pleasantville, which is a neighborhood here in Houston, because I wanted to write something about Vietnam. 60s Blacks and the beginning of the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to write about a Black suburb in Houston that were considered somewhat middle class and then started to spiral down. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at Pleasantville and I started writing, just creating my own thoughts and, and characters and stories. And I kept researching Pleasantville 
And as I kept researching Pleasantville, something popped up one day about a Black Panther leader that was born in Pleasantville and that was killed by HPD in 1970. His name is Carl Hampton. And so as I was reading it and I kept saying, well, this isn't true because Fred Hampton was in Chicago. And I think they have the story confused because I'm born and raised in Houston and I'm a woman of a certain age and I have never heard this story. And I did all this research. There was a chapter of the Black Panther Party here in Houston and the leader was assassinated. And the story I feel was somewhat hush-hush, especially after years later came out that they were there to assassinate him. It was all part of Hoover's plan to go to each city and kill all of the leaders. After Fred Hampton died, they started to hit all the other cities where a leader was becoming prominent and and assassinate them. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, Bobby Seale is still with us, but others were assassinated. And I was just like, oh, wow, I cannot believe that this happened here in Houston. And the reason Pleasantville was associated with it because we, a lot of the members were born in Pleasantville. And I said, no, this is the play I want to tell. And I didn't know if I wanted to tell it from the point of view of Carl because I had not gotten in touch with any of the members or his family. And so I decided, because I like writing about women, and in my research of the Black Panther Party, something else that's not really known, the Black Panther Party was mostly made up of women. Hmm. And I said, well, I can tell the point of view from four women about that night and what happened. Now, in the process of writing, I was able to get in contact with the uh, members here, and they welcomed me in. They told me stories. They they gave me and my family shirts <laughs> and all kind of things. And I'm now really good friends with one of the members, uh, John Bunchy Creer. He's doing a really good job of keeping their fight alive. They were not a violent group. They were about helping their community. They were about helping their community and. Since then, Sheila Jackson Lee has awarded them, and I may get the wording wrong, but the city of Houston awarded them the organization that has done the most for African-Americans here in Houston. It is because of them, kids in Houston in HIV get free lunch, Mm because they started that. And it is the reason why we're able to get sickle cell testing in high school. They did a lot of programs for the elderly. So I just thought all of this stuff was very important for me to yeah. tell this story since those members are in their late 60s, early 70s now. And I feel when I talk to them, they are afraid their story is going to die with them. And I just, I could not let that happen. Yeah. Well, that's huge. That's important work that you're doing and, and very impactful. And just you. Uh, just you talking about the things right there, I, I did not know about a lot of that. So mm-hmm. uh, very important work that you're doing. Thank you. Are you Thank welcome. you. Yeah. To switch gears a little bit, the animated shows that you were on, like you mentioned earlier, Care Bears and Strawberry Shortcake and the Brats. Can you talk about that, how it is acting in those shows? Yeah. Well, it was a lot of fun. I couldn't believe when I got the job that we were getting paid to come up there. 
and do that, but okay. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was one of those jobs you get in LA and say, oh, I looked out here. We were basically, how do you describe it? Like, like a green screen almost. Yeah. And so sometimes we did the voicing, but we were always the characters. So what would happen is, it was for Mike Young Productions, which is now Moon Scoop Productions. And so they had a really nice studio and there were different sections and they had the cartoonist in one section and it would start with them. And then they created, you know, the characters. Mm. They would create the characters and then it would go to another section where they would make it like a one dimensional cartoon where they just may suggest movements or actions or dances like that. And so that's where we would get it. And so we would be in this huge room and our director would play it for us and we would only get like a frame. So it would take a week to do one episode. Mm. So we would get one frame, one shot. So in one shot, we would see the one frame action really quick along with the words. And we would have to learn the words and the movement if they were possible. And sometimes we would have to do new movements. And then we would go up on the screen and act it out. And then they would record us. And after we recorded our part, the animators would go in and pretty much it looked like to me, put the cartoon over our body. So now they're, cause they're all two dimensional. Right. That was the thing with these cartoons. These were the updated versions. So they weren't flat. These cartoons looked real or like if one of us scratched our heads or anything like that, like it came out uh, because they were doing what we were doing. Oh, wow. So it was a lot of fun. Wow. Okay. Now, did that seem more difficult to act that way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's like Avatar. Like if you watch the mm-hmm. the making of it, you're having to act sometimes to something that's not there. Right. And like if it was a scene where we had to ride a horse, we're on apple boxes and things like that, like sitting on them and, and moving <laughs> them. We definitely had moments of like, oh God, I hope nobody walks in <laughs> and see us. We had those moments like, I cannot believe we did that today. <laughs> And it's silly because we were adult women acting like kids for a cartoon show. And especially the brass was more edgier, but Strawberry Shortcake was, it wasn't even PG or G. It was very, almost so leave it to beaver. And so we, you know, some things seemed a little corny for us but for kids little girls that were like three and four it was perfect for them right right yeah (laughs) (laughs) now with you writing so many different plays do you have friends and family coming up to you asking you if they can be in your work (laughs) (laughs) yeah i have especially when those shows were touring when the shows would be here in houston and we would have a, a after party and we would be in the VIP section. I would have family members like pop up in there <laughs> and like, 
looking for me to hook them up with something. I'm like, first of all, how are you in here? Right. <laughs> I'm not even a club person. Like, I was probably there for a minute. Mm-hmm. And, like, they're in there. But, yeah, I, I get that a lot. I get that a lot. Or I get people calling me and just, like, telling me their stories. And and I'm thinking, oh, my God, that's horrible, this, this, and the other. And I'm not realizing they're wanting me to write their life story. Mm-hmm. And I'm that's always a bit confusing because that's just not what I do. You know, I don't go around and write everybody's life stories. So, right. and I have put family and friends in shows and it, and it's actually worked out well that far has. Okay. Yeah. Now, any surprises for you in the industry, like things that beforehand going into the industry, you didn't really think about, but Maybe the family members coming up to you, so many family members yeah. and friends coming up to you, yeah. things like that, that surprised you. I had a friend once call me and ask me to buy him a car. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't make money <laughs> like that. That was the strangest call. That was the strangest phone call. Other things that surprised me, really that just, I had a natural gift for writing. Mm. I had no idea. Yeah. I, I just had no idea. And and then what's strange is after I wrote my first play and then the second play, because I have a knack for comedy. And I always thought it was like a one-time fluke. Mm. Like, it was funny this time. I don't think I'm going to be able to keep being funny. And the comedy just kept going and kept going. And I am and just the writing itself is a shock. And then the comedy is a shock. And in the other play that I have this year, well, I wrote it two years ago, uh, but the Alley Theater is producing it, producing a reading of it in April. I wrote stand-up comedy all through the show. So I'm just amazed with how the comedy has grown. And so it's amazing to watch me think, on the first play, which was a romantic comedy, me thinking it was going to be a one-time fluke, to 10 years later, the comedy has evolved so much. I'm writing stand-up comedy mm-hmm. in the show. So that's I'm really shocked about that. Oh, you must be a very funny person for you to write uh, stand-up comedy. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I would have never thought. And it's for two different characters all through the show. I'm writing mm-hmm. stand-up comedies. It's crazy. Wow. Now, you mentioned how long you've been in the industry. What type of changes have you seen in the industry, or have there been any changes at all? Yeah, um, I definitely have seen, when I came into the industry, actors were using black and white headshots. Mm. And now it's like the more color, the better. I feel I am on, we're on the cusp of takeover of black women. So when I came into, we were not seen as much, except for the prominent actors, actresses, I guess, and producers and directors like Debbie Allen, Angela Bassett. Right. I know when I came in, Mar Brock was just starting with girlfriends. So even she was just starting out. But now I think, man, the power black women have we have learned to work together and to support each other and to tell our stories and allow each other to tell our stories and not diminish what one woman is doing. And I think 
Hollywood and Broadway and these theaters have no choice but to move aside and allow us to do it because if you don't, we're going to do it on our own and you're going to be upset that, that you missed out on it. Mm-hmm. So I have definitely, which is a good time to be here from when I first came in and how, because the only reason why I start writing these roles was because there were not many being offered to a young black girl. Right. Yeah. And so now Issa Rae, she started on her own and took control. You know, that's the energy of it right now. In theater as well. I think theater is about to change for black people, period. People of color. Yep. Yeah. I was trying to think of the show that's coming out. I think it's on stars with, oh my gosh. Black girls, it, it looked really good, and I'm going to see it. My wife and I, uh, man, I can't, it's on the tip of my tongue. I can't think of the name of it, but yeah, no, but you're right all, in general. Just, yeah, it's a change. That's a definite change that we've seen over the last few years for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I'm excited about it. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about what a typical day of yours looks like. Can you talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> a typical day, I am in grad school for art administration and oh god a typical day of mine is one getting my daughter up Hmm. for school that's how the day is started and then once she is settled in her class at 7 30 because she does online I will on a good typical day meditate Hmm. (laughs) I will meditate and I'll pray and then get myself up maybe I'm starting to, if the sun is out, go sit outside in the backyard and do yoga once the sun hits and sit out there and do yoga. After that, I come in, I go through my planner and check all appointments that I may have, set up meetings that I need to have if possible. And then I'll go through, so right now I'm going through a workshop with the Alley Theater. And so... After I do all of that, after I eat and get myself together, I start going through my script and going over rewrites. Mm. As I'm going through rewrites, sometimes I have to step away, walk around, let the characters talk in my head, and then come back in and complete that, send it off. If there is school reading for me to do, which is all of the time, I try to squeeze some of that in. And then after that, going into the evening, maybe spending time with my daughter, taking her to the park, helping her with her homework, doing the mom, doing the mom duty. Mm-hmm. Um, once evening starts, I start to think about uh, the next work mm-hmm. that I have and the research that I'm going to have to map out to do that because it may take a month of research before I can even start writing. And I'll start to reach out to people, usually in the evening, who may have lived, like I'm toying right now with the idea of Shirley Chisholm Mm. and reaching out to people who may have been impacted by her or have a story about her, people that I know first before I go to the internet and doing all of that. Now on a typical work, day because of how playwright is it it just depends on 
where I am in the work. So right now is a good time because I have two shows that are being produced by theaters. And so my workload now is a lot easier. Like I get to do the interviews and just a couple of rewrites or, and things like that. Next week, I go into workshop with the alley. And so my days will be getting my daughter up and getting her settled. I have rehearsal with the alley from 10 to 5.30. And then at 5.30 to 8.30, I'm in class. And that will be all of that week. And so those weeks are draining because I will sit in a rehearsal and listen to actors go through the script, ask me questions, try to understand the characters. We do table work, listen to them, run the jokes and understanding what I meant by it and us talking about it and rehearsing it. And that takes some mental capacity to sitting there for eight hours and and going through each line, each word, what does this mean? Where was she at in this time in her life? Having those kind of conversations while still doing all of my reading for grad school and class and projects all of next week. So that's that's the life of a a playwright Mm. when it gets going. That's a lot. That is a lot. Now, Now, the research, the research that you do for your projects uh, before you you start working on your projects, is that fun to you or does that seem like work? Oh, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. Um, My play, The um, Old Black, White in Hollywood, is special to me because that play spoke to me. That play Mm -hmm. found me. Mm -hmm. And we had a workshop with the playwright, Susan Laurie Park. And I told her about my idea about the play. And she said that the ancestors were speaking to me mm. because she said that happened wow. to her. And so she was like, the ancestors are speaking to you and they're trying to tell you something. And so because this was during the time when I was trying to figure it out. But I feel like I'm a spiritual person. <laughs> Somebody's story needed to be told. Yeah. I knew I needed to tell a story of an actress who didn't quite make it but she broke a barrier down and we didn't give her or we don't know who she is. And so all summer, I think summer 2019 or 18, all summer, it just kept haunting me. Like I need to tell this story of this actress who almost did. And I just went back and forth, back and forth. And every time I would try something, my spirit would say, no, that's not it. No, that's not it. And then one time I created this show about, and this is what old black and white Hollywood is, about a black woman who was a comic, almost almost who resembled like a mom's maidly. But she wanted to break into Hollywood and she wanted to be the first black movie star because she was so talented. But she wanted to do it without playing a maid. However, they made her play a maid anyway, but she was going to still be edgy and she said things on TV. That's what the show is about. She said things on TV, like on live television where they couldn't catch her. She would say things like Jesus was black. And this was on a TV show in 1954. Mm-hmm. Like this is the world I created. And so when I created that character, my soul was like at ease. And I was like, whoever this is, this is a story. And I, when I say 
this is the show I wrote the stand up. I woke up one morning, RJ, and God literally gave me that opening stand up. Mm. Word for wow. word. Wow. Word for word. And you're talking about writing stuff down. And I didn't I didn't have to. I just got out of bed because I kept saying, oh my gosh, please don't let me forget this. <laughs> this is gold. And as I got out of bed and ran to my computer and every word was there. Somebody's story needed to be told. It's amazing. Yeah. So I love the research because now I'm dealing with a black actress who I can identify with, but during Jim Crow and what they had to go through, not only did they only could not only did they have to play butlers, maids and mammies and step and fetch it, they had to because it was illegal for them to play anything else. Right. Some moments like when Lena Horne would get into a movie and sing, when that movie came into Texas or the South, they had to cut her part out because they could only see black people being a maid. And man, it, it's just the research, the research. Even when they would have someone playing a mulatto, mm -hmm. they would cast white people. Mm. So I enjoyed that research. Yeah. I learned so much. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's not the same, but for the podcast, I feel like it's stories that need to be told for the people that I interview and that's the same with me. I just love the research, researching yeah. the people before interviewing them so I can have a smart conversation with them. But no, no, yeah. I love it. I love that part of it. I love that part learning about all these different people and what they do and, and their backgrounds. So, yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. Thank and, you. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. And that show, it just came to mind. It's Run the World. Oh, I haven't heard of that. Yeah. yeah that check down. out the trailer. Yep. Looks really good. All Is right. it Little Girls? Run the World. Okay. Yep. I'm okay. stars. Yep. I'm stars. Okay. All right. So now what skills and characteristics would you say are important to be successful in the things that you do from uh, playwriting to acting to producing? Um, tenacity. Mm. Because you're going to get told no. Things are not going to work out all the time. Right. There, that's going to be more of the time than it, it's going to go right. And if you can't deal with that, uh-uh. Um, so tenacity, hard worker. Mm -hmm. I'm comfortable in saying I may not be the most talented. I will outwork anybody. Mm -hmm. I will get up. And it, and it has. So I take my hat off to parents because it is harder once you have kids. That was a different fire in me when I was single. You know, because I, I could just work. I, sometimes I would be up until... Um, five in the morning from working all night to just sleep to like 10 in the, that next morning and then get up and continue. And I, I can't do that anymore, but right. I'm, I'm still have found another way to be a hard worker. So have, being a hard worker, tough skin. Mm. It's nothing like sitting in the audience and nobody laughs at a joke. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. Because sometimes things just don't work out. And so you have to take it, take that to like, okay, well, this part didn't work. Or you're going in for an audition and they're just like, no, you didn't get this part. Or, you know, the director is giving you notes and which is the normal part of acting. But sometimes 
newer actors take note as if the director's being mean. Yeah. That is not it. And I, and I hate to see that. I, I witnessed that recently with a newer actor and she just felt the director was just pushing on her or picking at her and she wasn't, you know? And I watched this girl fold, cry, stomp, get mad and not want to do it. You, you'll never make it. Right. You, just, you just won't make it. Even if somebody gives you an end, you won't be able to sustain. Nobody is above criticism. And I would say something I'm just finding out too is being yourself and and holding true to your own values and morals and what makes you happy, what are you interested in. Uh, if you bring that to your work, I think that makes you stand out. I think it makes you different. Mm -hmm. And I think we try so hard to be like somebody else. So I'm going to be the next. And I'm like this person. No, just be you. And that's the most important, if anything. All right. So there's some good advice in this too. And I guess one question I have. So you mentioned the tenacity, hard worker, having that tough skin, being yourself. And you also mentioned that no one is above criticism. Is there any other advice that you would have for people getting into your industry? Yeah. One, for actors, agents aren't going to ask you to give them money because I get a lot of mothers, mostly. I get a lot of mothers whose kids are wanting to act. And then they go out and they find these agents and the agents are saying, oh, it'll be this like $500 and then you can start with me. Don't do that. Please mm. don't do that. Agents won't ask you for money. They're just going to ask you for a headshot and resume. And then they may ask you for a demo reel. And a demo reel is like an example, basically, of your film work. Mm. Like a little trailer. It should be no more than two minutes long. And that's what they're going to look at to decide if they would like to invite you into their agency. Or they may ask you for a monologue. Actors, new actors especially, please have, you know, contrasting monologues. That's two monologues that are different from each other. You may want to do a comedy or drama. That's the most basic. Have those things. If you can't find anything, you can go to the library. They have books of monologues there. You can Google. They have monologues there. You can even think about your favorite movie and find little monologues there. And monologues are just a paragraph mm -hmm. or two put together that one character is saying. They're talking to someone else or to the audience. That's tangible advice I would like to give actors. And also get into an acting class. You have to be trained. Your acting culture helps you with your headshot and resume, with your auditioning. And then when you book something, they'll help you with an agent. And, you know, once you have an agent, your agent will send you out for bigger jobs that you probably couldn't land the audition on your own. Right. Yeah, and look for a SAG franchise agency. I like to say because those are definitely legit. You don't have to worry about, again, some agent coming to you later and saying, okay, we need a $1,000 now. Right. Oh, and also parents, stay away from the gimmick of, 
all of the Disney, Nickelodeon people are going to be in Florida auditioning for these new shows, pay us $5,000 and come in. No, just get it. Just train, get your headshot and resume, get an agent. Okay. That's it. That's all. That's all it is. And as for writers, write every day. Even if it sucks, just write every day. You'll definitely get stronger. You'll get stronger and then start sending out your work to friends and family and getting advice or inviting a couple of actors over to hear your script out loud and produce it on your own if you can't find anyone else. That's great advice. Love it. So thank you. So make sure you watch out for fake agents. Look for SAG franchise agents. You want to make sure you have your demo reels done and uh, at least two monologues. Get into the acting class. Write every day for writers to get better. Get constructive criticism on what you do and produce on your own if you can. Great, great advice. Thanks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And find a mentor if you can. Mm. Yeah. If you are an actor or a writer in Houston, you can contact me because I, I have a lot of men to you. <laughs> that is great. I don't mind. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Now, can you talk about what you love about what you do? Mm-hmm. Uh, everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just grateful. I'm just grateful that I was able to, you know, like how people were aware that they were good at something and then like life just kind of got in the way. I'm just grateful to God that it hit me and he showed me. And when they say that your talent will make a way for you, it's true. And I feel like just because I rode with God through it, he just, he kept opening these doors that I was not going to be able to open. And so I I love everything about it. And there's a difference, man, like getting up doing something that you love versus the drag of getting out of bed to go and do a job that, which I've been there, I've been there. But mostly that's, that's what I love about it is just how it makes my life, how it, you know, carves this life out for myself that I enjoy. And it's mm-hmm. not easy. Right. I tell you, the hardest part is you don't get paid as much. It's good. And then it's just like, oh, you're waiting for like your next gig. But I'm okay because I'm, I'm it's everything is taken care of. It's, for, I'm, you know, everything is provided some magical way. <laughs> it keeps happening. So um, I also love to, after a show and when people come up to me and, and, you know, tell me what they liked about the show or what they love, that's so important to me. And I enjoy that. That's great. Now, what about on the flip side? What type of challenges are out there for you or obstacles? Yeah, right now the challenges are... um, getting into theaters, getting into theaters, which was already the challenge. Um, and then COVID happened. Yeah. 
it's, it's a challenge, uh, you know, trying to get a theater to see your work or produce your shows when they have so many. I'm thinking sometimes when you send your script off, I don't think they always read every script that comes in. So that that's a challenge. Yeah. That is a challenge. And now, you know, Broadway has been hit with COVID like everywhere else, but you know, how can we function when we're made up of people on stage acting, talking right in each other's face and an audience who are sitting next to each other with thousands of thousands or 2,000 feet in a theater? It just can't happen right now. So thankfully we are doing virtual, which is fine for right now, but yeah, it's hard. It's that, that is hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, hopefully things turn around soon with the vaccine and things of that nature. Because yeah. yeah, extremely hard right now. Yeah. Any other challenges besides that? Um, just looking for the space to do your art mm. is a challenge as well. We're still black women aren't there yet, but we're mm. getting there. But I just came from maybe like two years ago from a a theater that made it harder for a show that was written and directed by a woman of color. And so I'll say that much. And and she and I had some challenges and we knew why we were having these challenges and we just kind of pushed through it. But it was something that she and I had to deal with and it just wasn't good. Costume people kind of like pushed us to the side at the theater. It was, it was, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. Half of them wanted to support us and were happy we were there. The other half didn't care. Just flat out racist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you have that tenacity and that perseverance. Mm-hmm. So that's why. Oh, yeah, we did our show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you have any memorable moments that stick out in your career, that stick out to you in your career? Yeah. At the show, Cheaper to Keeper, when it opened in Los Angeles, I sat next to Damon Wayans. Oh, wow. <laughs> I sat next to Damon Wayans and I think it was Sean, not Marlon. And they sat next to me. They didn't know I was a writer, but it was just so cool. And then the next show, when I went outside, I went outside because I was leaving early that night. Martin walked out with me oh, really? and he had a limo. And I was just like, oh my God. And he was putting his date into the car. And I was just like, oh my God, Martin just saw my show. And I'm <laughs> sitting next to Damon Wayans, who's my favorite Wayans. That's why it was a big deal for me. <laughs> Listen to him laugh at, at the show. I was just like, I was watching him. I didn't even wow. watch the show. <laughs> That's um, got to be surreal, seeing yeah. Damon yeah. Wayans laughing at your show. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I should have asked him for a job. <laughs> <laughs> I should have. But yeah, it's another, um, when the show was here, one of the shows was here at the Hobby and my entire family were all like on the first five rows. That oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. That yeah, is awesome. That was great. Yeah. And then your 
the you've worked with several megastars the 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 first ones i think you mentioned them that vivica fox mm-hmm. and uh brian mcknight and t-boz t-boz yeah, yeah so T-Boz. how was that working with them um it was good <laughs> it was good t-boz was really nice she used to like to quote martin a lot shanae <laughs> and i found myself doing that a lot with her and i was just like how do we get here <laughs> um <laughs> Um, and Wendy Raquel Robinson, man, mm. I learned so much about comedy with her. Mm. You know, the acting part of it. She thought I was a comic when she met me because of how the script was written. And I was like, well, no, I'm not a comic. And she was like, oh, okay, do you write for comedians? And I was like, no. And she was just like, okay. You know, but watching her bring it to life, I learned so much that, you know, that stuck with me about timing. Yeah. Um, um, and, and Brian McKnight was really nice um, um, he would sing if I would ask him to sing a song really? or something like that that was so nice of him to do yeah. he would always go out of his way to find me and give me a hug and mm. you know just talk and chat I think I was really intimidated the first time I sat with him being in LA though I used to be in smaller productions with other known artists and that was okay but it wasn't like I was acting alongside of them they were saying my words so that was new for me seeing how they would sound if they would say oh I don't want to do this because that was always a fear and they would say this script is horrible this isn't good (laughs) why y'all doing her show that's what was in my mind not realizing they already read it and agreed to come in do the show but you right. know new writer at the time you know that's what I would think about so yeah it was a good experience a good experience and then also it lets you know that they're human right nobody's better than the next person and whatever it is you want to do regardless of who's there you deserve to be there just the same exactly what I take away and tell everybody listening to yeah yep exactly you deserve to be there now mm-hmm. Have you ever thought about doing stand-up? You wrote for stand-up in in these shows. You have comedians coming to you thinking that you're a comic. (laughs) Have you thought about it? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I have. (laughs) I have. Two years ago, it was my... And I normally don't do New Year's resolutions, but this year in particular, I did a New Year's resolution because one month, I was going to do like a 3K just so, you know, for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And I was... I was going to do stand-up. I kept saying, I'm going to just sneak to, you know, not tell anybody Mm -hmm. and like sneak to like an open mic and do stand-up. But what was crazy, when my school, UH, produced, they did a a, a school production of the old black and white Hollywood, I ended up having to be the lead character. And she's the one that does all of the stand-up. So I had to do stand-up for the show, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm doing stand-up. Oh, my God, I'm doing stand-up. I'm actually doing stand-up. And it was the year that was my New Year's resolution to do stand-up. So God was like, go ahead and do it. Go ahead. You said <laughs> I'll fix you. And so I had to do it. And I was nervous. My mouth kept getting dry. It is, it is the scariest thing. I think. 
being a comic out of all the things an artist can be has to be one of the scariest things because your job is to make them laugh right not cry yes you want them to think and you know and ponder on all these other issues but that's not your job they're there to laugh right and it's hard to make black people laugh <laughs> It's harder to make black people laugh. Like they come to not laugh. Right, right. You know, so you're challenged when they buy tickets. Mm-hmm. So that's that was hard. Nice. So you did do it then. I did. Good. It. I Good. did it. I kind of want to do it again, like for real, for real. Yeah. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead and do it. It's yeah. January, another, another New Year's resolution. Yeah. <laughs> All yeah. right. Well, hey, Shawana, we're at the end of this interview. This is oh, okay. great. Yeah. I want to head over to this quick hitter session. We're going to ask you questions for fun. Just to okay. get to know you a little bit better. But before we do that, just want to find out if there's anything additional that you would like to talk about or anything you might have felt like I might have left off asking you. Um, no, but if... I'm not for sure when this will air, but my two plays that are showing, well, they'll be online. Power to the Queendom, which is the play about the Houston chapter Black Panther Party. Mm -hmm. You will be able to stream it on Rec Room at Rec Room Theater and it's recroomarts.org. And that will be February 18th through the 22nd. And then the other play about the actress during Jim Crow is called Old Black, White in Hollywood. That one you'll be able to stream April 16th through May 16th. And that is with the Alley Theater. And that is Alley Theater, T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org. All right. That is great. These are the first two of that six play cycle yeah all right yes. great all right so let's head to these quick hitter questions okay first one <laughs> uh, nah, nothing to be nervous about okay. first one what's your favorite sports team <laughs> oh boy oh <laughs> um, i don't have one um this is why I was a huge Peyton Manning fan. Okay. I mean, a huge Peyton Manning fan. I went with him even when he traveled to the Broncos. I have mm. all the jerseys. After Peyton Manning retired, I retired sports. And I, I used to be a huge sports fanatic. Wow. But I, I've just, and I said that the other day, I may need to start back watching football. Yeah. Well, but, he was, he was amazing. He was amazing. So that's a, uh, that's a good player to be a huge fan of. So. Yeah, yeah. Him and Coach Dungy. That mm-hmm. I just love them. And so when they left, I just kind of left. Yep. All right. Favorite movie or show? Favorite movie is Boomerang with Eddie Murphy and Halle Berry. Mm-hmm. Love that movie. I just don't get tired of it. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite musical artist or group? Oh, boy. <laughs> uh... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's so hard. Favorite group. Favorite group, Mint Condition. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love them. Yeah. A live band. 
Uh, I've seen them uh, stuck with Carmichael, that, that voice. So I'm just going to say mid condition yeah. and, and for the culture. And because growing up, I was a huge Janet Jackson fan. Okay. Huge Janet Jackson fan. So. Nice. There's so many. I, that, this one was really hard to answer. Right. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Favorite vacation spot? Um, any place with a beach. Hmm. Any place with a beach. Yeah. Um, and I've been to plenty. Yeah. So it's a beach. All right. Beach. And last, favorite food or drink? Favorite food, um, um, seafood. Mm -hmm. Seafood. So I'm gonna say gumbo. Okay. Um, favorite drink is water. All I drink is water. And if I love wine, I love Stella Rosa wine. It's just perfect. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. So those are my favorite drinks. <laughs> All right. Well, Shawana, like I said, this has been great. Learned a lot by yeah. this. Just love your spirit. Love what you do. It's very huge. And I said it earlier, just important, powerful work that you're doing. And uh, just keep telling the stories. Keep telling the stories. Thank keep you. doing what you're doing. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. And can you talk one more time about the plays that are coming up and yeah. where people can view them? Yes, thank mm -hmm. you. Thank you. And thank you for having me on. This was so nice. I'm glad Dom connected us. Yeah. Yep. And happy birthday. Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. The play Power to the Queendom, the play about the Black Panther Party, is it will be February 18th through the 22nd and you can stream it. This one is an audio play, but they did a lot of work to it. It, it sounds amazing. You hear real sounds in the backgrounds and everything. So it's really nice. nice. This is a recroomarts.org. That's R-E-C-R-O-O-M-A-R-T-S.org, recroomarts.org. And then the other play, Old Black and White Hollywood, will be you'll be able to stream it from the Alley Theater. And their website is alleytheater.org, A-L-L-E-Y-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org. And that's April 16th through May 16th. That's great. A whole month. Mm -hmm, awesome. A whole month. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you. Appreciate you for coming on and have a good one. Okay, thank you, RJ. You too. All right, bye. Enjoy your day. Yeah, thank you. You too. You can contact Shawana at sillycharmproductions at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.